This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, I have the great pleasure of speaking with my good friend Jennifer Egan, who just happens to be one of the contemporary novelists I most admire. She is best known for her 2010 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, and its sister novel, if you will, This Falls the Candy House, which we'll be discussing in depth in a bit. But she has deservedly garnered acclaim and awards and readers for all of her books, including two of my other favorites, Manhattan Beach and Look at Me. What do I admire so much about Jennifer Egan as a novelist? Her restless, probing, surgical intellect, for one thing. How in her fiction she brilliantly investigates and interrogates the layered, interconnected technologies that we yearning, striving, dreaming humans create in our attempts to express ourselves and alleviate our existential loneliness, to bridge the gaps between us, our secrets, memories, unconscious lives. The themes of Jenny's books are deeply rooted in the fault line between our external social selves, as represented by culture and technology, and our most private selves, so private that we're not even sure what's in there. But above all, I'd say that the true driving engine of Jenny's work is her own boundless curiosity. She wants to actually discover what we're really up to in the darkness of our plain sight and what that feels like for better and for worse. And to my mind, that's what makes her one of our essential novelists. But okay, that's enough praise for today. Uh, wouldn't you say, Jenny? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's going to uh, be no, hard living enough. with me. <laughs> I can feel my head swelling as we speak. Uh, I'm going to get a call from all your family members. <laughs> what, what have you done? So let's dive in. I, I'm just so glad we're doing this. Reading this book, even years after reading Goon Squad, was such a pleasure. And then going back to the first book and and this incredible fabric that you've woven across time. And, you know, I was talking to someone about the candy house just the other day, and she said that her niece, who's in her late 30s, had just read the novel in her book group, and that 12 years ago, the same book group had read Goon Squad, and that somehow for everyone in the group, those two books felt like deeply meaningful bookends to a period in all their lives. And I thought that was really beautiful, and it made me want to ask you if, if you had it in your mind to create this ongoing multi-character, multi-form universe that might mirror our own and speak to readers as we grow older and age, and how did you know how to do that? Well, it's funny. You know, I feel like I never, I never know what I'm doing or how to do anything. It all seems to happen by accident. So I didn't have any sort of grand scheme. In fact, I started writing Goon Squad 
and not even realizing I was writing a book. I was procrastinating because I was hesitant to dive into Manhattan Beach because I knew how much work it would be. And I started writing what I thought were just freestanding stories to, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of be writing, but not dealing with that project. And the three pieces that I wrote, because I was not thinking of them as being part of one book, had a very different vibe from each other. But mm-hmm. they did have some characters in common, and I had never done that before. And I found it so fun to notice someone peripherally in one story and then plunge into their inner life in yep. the next that I thought, wow, it would be really fun to write a whole book sort of built around that feeling. And Mm -hmm. so I thought, okay, so it's a book. I don't have to start Mm -hmm. the other one at all. And so I thought, well, what are the properties of this book? And that was just a matter of noticing what already was going on that seemed fun. And the properties were each chapter is about a different person. Each chapter stands on its own. And each chapter, and this was the most important thing, feels different from a craft perspective. Mm -hmm. So they don't feel like they're part of one book. And I thought, yeah. So I, I kept going. But the really strange thing was I immediately started thinking about four individual stories I had written in the past 10 years before that that had all been published that I thought, I wonder if there's a way that they can connect to this world. They had no overlap at all. No characters? With the new one. They didn't share any characters at all? Not among themselves, mm-hmm. nor with the new material. Mm. And so I thought, wouldn't that be great? Because I I felt like I had these orphaned stories that mm-hmm. I couldn't find any way to make them into something bigger. And then I felt like tentacles reached out from these works and showed me connections among them. And mm-hmm. some of the most defining elements of Goon Squad and Candy House really emerged from those unrelated pieces I had written 10 years earlier. So all of this is to say that While I never really had any kind of grand plan, from the very beginning, this material had a sort of connective tissue quality Mm -hmm. that seemed to be able to affix itself beyond its own boundaries. So that property has been there. Yeah, it kind of perfectly describes what you actually made, you know, in the form of the book in a way. And Goon Squad follows a number of characters, obviously, as you're saying, and It's a kind of extended family. They're related in different ways and in affinities in and around the music business, which becomes, again, a sort of underlying atmosphere, if you will. And Candy House takes some of those characters from Goon Squad who were minor and makes them central, which, as you were saying, is part of the fun. And then it telescopes their relationships backwards and forwards in time. And tech, in this case, specifically an invention of a character named Bix Boughton is the backdrop for much of the candy house. So would you talk a little bit about Bix's invention? Uh, I should say your invention, I would assume, (laughs) uh, and how it informs the narrative and and how you came to that as a sort of underlying engine, if you would. Sure. So I came to it kind of late. I'll explain what it is first. It's pretty simple. He invents a device called Own Your Unconscious that allows people to externalize the whole of their consciousnesses, so all of their memories, onto a cube and review all of them from a present-day perspective as a private 
self-knowledge tool, if you will. And if they want to, to share all or part of those memories to a collective in exchange for access to a corresponding portion of the collective mm-hmm. themselves. So it's a give to get model <laughs> that is so familiar to us from the internet. And uh, But that's what it does. But it came to me actually kind of later than you might think, because it does serve as a backbone to the story. But it came to me sort of in glimmers as I was working on some chapters that actually don't have anything to do with the machine directly, but Mm -hmm. in which I was getting glimpses of a future in which some of these things seem possible. So for example, there's a chapter called Rhyme Scheme where a young tech worker is in love with his colleague and he's a very kind of metrics-oriented guy trying to figure out how to make her fall in love with him using basically data. And one thing that crosses his mind is that he could view some of her memories in the collective Mm -hmm. so that he could find out what she likes, sort of like, what are her tastes? What's going to make her fall in love with him? But then he immediately dismisses that idea as not allowed, crossing a line, and that if he did that, she would hate him. So it would defeat the purpose. And that was the first inkling I got that in this future, people can see each other's thoughts. And I thought, well, I'm not sure what to do with that, but that's interesting. It's a wonderful chapter, and it turns out that the protagonist of that chapter is the son of Sasha, who was the music assistant in Goon Squad, uh, to Benny Salazar. And so these are the sorts of connections that begin to build at the same time you sort of begin to express how all the different family members, if you will, and the extended family are all relating to these things in their own way for their own reasons, and both succeeding and failing kind of all the time. Well, one thing that's interesting is I wrote the first chapter, which is about Bix, in which he has a kind of midlife crisis. He's already invented social media in my world. So he's a very famous guy, very successful and wealthy, but he can't figure out what to do next. And I ended that chapter with a certainty that something he would invent would be important in the Mm -hmm. book. But it took me a very long time before these glimmers of a future in which people can read each other's thoughts combined with this idea of what he would invent. So again, as with the original project in which these individually written stories combined with material that was unrelated, Mm -hmm. I find that some of these points of connection seem to happen so organically that I really don't feel like I'm devising it, but more like I'm recognizing a pattern. I mean, you've talked about the sharing of personality and private lives and other things. And then there's the sharing of music, which actually appears in a chapter here in the Candy House. But was this on your mind in other ways, sort of floating around? In little ways, yes. As so often, you mentioned curiosity, and that is a huge motivator for me. A lot of my ideas come about because something is interesting to me personally, and then I kind of extrapolate from that into something larger. So I've been thinking a lot about memory and feeling sometimes frustrated with the limits on my own memory. Sometimes I feel like the things I remember best are the things I have pictures of, which leads to the question of whether those are real memories or whether I'm remembering photographs. Mm -hmm. And I would find myself sometimes thinking, why can't I see the moment after that moment I keep remembering? Why is it those moments? There's so few of them compared to Mm -hmm. the totality of life. So that was a question out there. Another thought I had was um, 
I would sometimes remember people I've met in my life whose full names I never even knew and think, where are they now? Like, I wish I could just suddenly see them because they do exist almost certainly. Mm-hmm. But how can I not see them? And in a way, that appetite for immediate gratification of curiosity, that is probably internet related. Because mm-hmm. if I did know their full names, I might actually be able to see them right now. Right. <laughs> so it's the lack of information that is stopping me. But this appetite for fulfillment of curiosity is immense in me and in us, I think. Then also what the reasons are for that. What are the reasons in ourselves? Why do we need to know something? And also our own memories being so rickety sometimes. The ordering of memory and the uncertainty of memory. Yes. um, Is part of what fiction is made out of. Absolutely. Yes. And there was another thing. I remember learning that DNA analysis, which is now so popular, 23andMe and all of these, that so many people in North America have done this. I have not, and I haven't. And even if I had done it and not made my results public, which is the give to get model, if you want to find out if you have relatives out there, you have to let people know if, if you're around that I am represented in that DNA collective, even without directly participating because of the sheer mass of people who have done it. So in other words, there's no way out for me. I'm in. And that, I remember the moment of learning that and thinking, wow, that's really strange. And that becomes really important in the candy house because Mm -hmm. exactly the same is true of the collective consciousness. Even if people don't want to externalize their consciousness as much less share them to the collective, they are so fully represented in the memories of all the people who have had interactions with them that are shared that they can't escape either. And so right from the beginning, my preoccupation with all of this felt like just a slightly exaggerated form of what we already live with. And that's always fun. In Candy House, a few of your characters belong to a loosely knit group of self-sacrificing rebels called the looters. There's some great terminology in here, and typicals is another one, and impressionists. The eluders are people who actively resist the dominating consciousness-gathering technology that Bix loosed on the world. And yet the eluders don't really seem any happier or more at peace with their memories than those who have bought into the prevailing system. So it's almost as if the eluders are saying it's all morally black and white, good versus bad, but then in their own lives, that supposed morality is not exactly bringing them any light either. Well, the only thing is I don't bring any eluders to the reader once they've eluded because the whole nature of eluding is you cast off your identity. You basically cede it to the collective as the price of freedom. You know, you, you now begin again as a new person and you are not the person who's overrepresented in the collective. So We meet people who go on to elude, but we never see them after they elude. So we really don't know what those lives are like. Uh, We may encounter them down the road, right? Another (laughs) book. But was that something that you just decided that was another region out of this, this particular book? Well, first of all, eluding actually connects to Look at Me, my book that you mentioned before. And there's actually the main character of that book is mentioned as the first eluder in the kind of history of of this technology, because she does do that ultimately. And I didn't want to look like I was trying to recycle an old idea of my own. Oh, why not? It was a good idea. Let's do it. (laughs) Um, 
So it wasn't so much that I wanted to visit people after they had eluded, although I did toy with that kind of unsuccessfully a couple of times. What I really wanted to do and was not able to do, and there are always a lot of those in these books, the failure ratio is very, very high. But one thing I was very curious about was the business of proxying. There's a lot of terminology, as you said. So proxies are people who impersonate eluders so that it will not be known that they have eluded for quite a while and they'll have time to really disappear and begin again. And so proxies impersonate them online. They -hmm. basically recreate the online activity of a person or continue it in such a way that only people who would have expected to see them in the real world know that they're gone. And it is posited with a little bit of a wink in the book that the best proxies are fiction writers because, (laughs) you know, we're good mimics and stuff. So I wanted to write about the business of proxying because we know who sort of originated it. It's a guy named Chris Salazar, who's the son of Benny Salazar, who's a major character in Goon Squad and appears here too. And I had a whole chapter I tried to write about someone working for him, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't get any traction with it. So there are a lot of those kind of unfulfilled wishes in these books. They're like little whispers of possibility that I'm just not Mm -hmm. able to pursue successfully. Well, there are so many tentacles that come out of this that lead to big ideas. How one can wrestle that in without disturbing the balance of the whole, which is so finely tuned. It's interesting, though. I almost feel like I don't get far enough for those to be the reasons that chapters don't work, because that would be not working on the kind of ideal level. But the problem is that when I try to write something that's not working for these books, it is like unreadable. I mean, it, it's, it doesn't get to the point where I'm asking uh-huh. myself if it's advancing the kind of idea structure. Right. I'm just knocking wall. on a door and no one's opening that door. Yeah. The other thing about these books is I try to use a lot of different forms because that helps me to enact this idea of each chapter having a different technical approach. And what I find is that if, Unusual forms or any form only works if it's the only way I can tell that story. And how do you know that in the end? You know it at once you're halfway in and... Well, I sense it early because there's either a feeling of an opening up of material or there's a feeling of closing down. Like I just can't move. I'll have a sense of like constriction. That's not what I want to feel. But sometimes I can go further. Like the chapter about proxying, there were some good moments in what I was writing, which is Mm -hmm. always promising. Often if there are good moments, there's a, a good hole that can contain those moments. But in that case, it wasn't so. And so there, it wasn't so much a sense of constriction as a kind of flailing around with no sense of convergence. Yeah. So they're just nothing gathered together into an actual story. It's so frustrating. Among these different forms, I mean, the most famous was the PowerPoint chapter in Goon Squad, which is entirely told in PowerPoint. And I still remember encountering that visually in the book. And the dialogue you have with the form as you read it, it's teaching you how to read it, but you're also kind of engaging with it the first time. In this book, in Kenny House, there's one chapter told in the second person 
in a series of sort of institutional directives and aphorisms. I found this chapter to be oddly poignant and riveting. And I wonder when you're writing in these forms, whether you're able to tap into the same kind of emotions or, or even different emotions as we do when we're writing a quote, you know, straight novel or a straight chapter of something. Yes. And I have to feel like I'm doing that. Or again, there's just a sense that it's sort of dead. I mean, in the end, the mm-hmm. emotions are everything. Like are. with that chapter, which was written for Twitter at 140 characters, so half mm-hmm. what it is now. I remember starting to write, and it's a very genre-esque story. It's, you know, it's like, it's a Mm -hmm. spy story. And I remember writing it and feeling a kind of inadvertent poignancy kind of creeping in, which I really liked because the story happens in the form of a list. It's a list of lessons that Lulu learns from each step that she takes in her spying. And the inspiration for that was a list that I was keeping on my phone for a while that was called Lessons Learned, which was <laughs> things in my life that I wanted to do differently. Where, where did and, that come from? Oh, I have so many lists. Okay. I have 800 or so. Most of them are obviously kind of I'm just dormant. wondering what family holiday that came out of. So yeah. There was a holiday. Was there? It said, yeah. get a narrower Christmas tree. That was one of my lessons. And then another one was put train ticket in bag night before always in all caps. So we know what happened there. Exactly. I realized that, you know, that lists, which are so pedestrian, so practical, actually carry a kind of emotional charge when you rediscover them because they capture a moment, they capture a personality and they often capture a situation. And so when Lulu was narrating her mission in the form of lessons learned, which is what she's been told to do, and various emotional qualities start to creep in, like fear or pain or doubt, and especially doubt about whether she will ever be the same person again Mm -hmm. after this is over, the fact that that poignancy could penetrate this very, you know, removed quality of narration was appealing to me because there's sort mm-hmm. of a contradiction there. It shouldn't it shouldn't have an emotional value, but it does. And I love it when those contradictions appear. That's right, because there's also something hopeful about it in, in that sense, like emotions that we don't expect to turn up in certain forms or, or technology. Speaking of tech, I keep thinking with all the different forms of technology, mathematics, engineering that are engaged here, that you seem very comfortable in that world. I think I'm not very comfortable in that world any more than I'm a big music person, which people reading Goon Squad assumed that I was. I think I sort of take on these approaches just for the books that I'm working on. This book feels very bound in with my kids, even though I don't think anyone reading it would probably guess that. But there was a moment where one of my sons was showing me a statistical chart of a baseball player's career (laughs) that was just a box. It was a box of numbers. And I was trying to get him to read, (laughs) as I usually was. And he said, I am reading. He was looking at this Mm -hmm. chart. And I said, no, no, I mean, like, read a story. And he said, this is a story. And he narrated the story of the baseball player's career using this chart. And that was a huge light bulb moment for me. That's great. So I thought, oh, my God, 
I'm a little afraid of numbers. And some of that is I had a terrible trigonometry teacher in high school and I barely got through and I lost the chain of knowledge that would have let me continue with math. I, I hope she's listening. So I found myself thinking, yes, so a table, a chart, any of that is storytelling. And so are equations. I thought a mathematical equation is a narrative. It's telling us a story. We move through it. So then I thought, could I write a chapter that's just all math? So that was my original, that was I'm my glad, original I have to goal. Say, personally, I'm glad you pulled back from the brink. I mean, I, I think you would have lost me on that one. I think I did not have the skill set. But as you say, Chris Salazar's first job out of college is to mathematize stock narrative elements of movies and books. So I create a lot of phony algebra for him to do that. And it was pretty fun. I'm not going to lie. And actually, in the world of AI that we are in and, and heading in more, I mean, basically, there are algorithms for everything that we're doing and thinking. And so you begin to get this sense that it's, it's all in there. We're just not seeing it. The idea there is a little bit that if it's diagrammable, it's probably not very good narrative. <laughs> um, and actually, I will say that the, some of the inspiration yeah. for that chapter also came from watching a very successful movie, which I will not name. I became amazed and even impressed with the fact that not a single moment of it was fresh or original. Every word out of people's mouths, every scene was a stock element. And I thought they've scrambled these up and laid it out and it's a success. And you could diagram this movie mathematically. So what's your social media relationship? I mean, I looked on your Instagram. I'm not an Instagram person except when we publish, right? You have to suddenly churn up. But I noticed that There are a lot of vistas. It's not at all like you would expect a very successful novelist. My next reading, you know, I'm showing up here, I'm doing that. You can buy tickets here and and mugs. And and it's really kind of images and places. I know place is very important to you in your writing, but I'm just wondering, what's your relationship with all of this and how comfortable or not? I I mean, not that comfortable. I, I, I feel that it's not... It's not an area where I can be very creative or very original. But on the other hand, to close myself off from it totally seems unnecessary. Like I'm willing to use social media as a practical tool, which I think is really using it at its most kind of basic and humdrum level. Mm -hmm. Um, So on Twitter and Facebook, I do try to publicize events that I'm doing. And I sometimes I forget. But once in a while, someone will say, oh, I just saw that on Facebook. And I'll think, okay, I got one more person to come. Instagram is the one I'm the newest to. And uh, my relationship with it began with my calling someone at Scribner and saying, I don't understand how to use Instagram because I'm trying to write something and they keep asking for an image. (laughs) And she had to say, (laughs) actually say to me, Jenny, Instagram is an image based platform. (laughs) So that's where I started. I have no judgment of anyone who's doing this successfully more power to them, but I cannot offer myself up as a character for creative consumption. It feels totally fake to me. And therefore, I'm sure I would do it badly. I'm not going to be taking lots of pictures of myself. I just, 
I can't. So I was doing a lot of train travel during my book tour. I love trains. Oh, that's interesting. I took a train from Chicago to San Francisco. I took a train from Boston to Chicago. I was in a sleeper cars. And I found that taking videos of these train rides, of the scenery going by, felt exciting to share. I felt like that's something I'm willing to share. I want us all to take more trains. So... I highly so, recommend it. Yeah, it's, it's a real Oh my throwback. God. I mean, I'm not making any promises, but for me, Chicago to San Francisco, which included a bus from Emeryville to San Francisco on oh. time. Three days later, okay. on time. <laughs> I, I can see you've crossed the Rubicon. I, uh, if, you, if you're willing to promote bus well, no, travel. Yeah, well, no, the bus um, was part of yeah. the train ticket. It's just that the tracks don't yeah. go from Emeryville to San Francisco. Anyway, so I yeah. guess I'm just trying to find ways to approach images in ways that feel natural to me and useful or of interest to anyone. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure I've really managed that, but I just figure if I'm going to do it, try to do it well. It's funny, just as you say that, having just reread The Candy House and some of the forms we're talking about and thinking about the PowerPoint chapter from Goon Squad, you never know how that's going to infiltrate some of the forms you you take down the road. But just about tech again, we're living in this world. I mean, however we spend our days, you know, alone writing, nonetheless, big tech is the world as as it started really 15, 20 years ago, and it's all around. And that news is as prevalent and prominent as any news there is. And if you're on Twitter, then you're on Elon Musk's world and everything else, even if you're coming from a literary place. And so I wonder the directions that that's taking, given the things you've been writing about, are particularly disturbing to you or inspiring in certain ways and not in others? And whether it feels all-consuming in a way that is strange or surprising and where you think maybe it's going. I think that in general with tech, I feel like there's a division between the way I think about it and feel about it as just a human being and a citizen and the way I think and feel about it as a writer. I'll start with as a writer. As a writer, I'm filled with curiosity and excitement because it offers me lots of new forms it actively changes the way people live. And so it's just an endlessly fascinating subject to watch unfold over time in the course of my life. You know, I was born in 62. And when I went to college, the only telecommunications innovation I was aware of was call waiting. So 18 years (laughs) with one change. So now, 18 years, it's a seismic difference. So that's... It's 18 months, really. Exactly. So that change, watching that change ripple through human life is just endlessly fascinating. As a human being and a citizen, I feel a lot of dread about it. I feel like, I mean, I can go on and on and I'm going to sound more like a boomer with every word out of my mouth, um, (laughs) which I technically am. Um, But, you know, a lot of time wasting encourages narcissism promises truth, but it's very hard to distinguish between a truth and a lie online. Mm -hmm. And I guess above all, I just feel like it distracts us from the things that really matter, like the fact that we're in a climate crisis, for example. And I think it encourages people to substitute 
the equivalent of yelling and screaming for actually doing something. I mean, the, the idea that being on social media is doing something, again, I know I sound like a boomer, but to my mind, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's actually the opposite. Um, and mm-hmm. I guess the biggest thing, though, because I'm already bored with myself saying these things. I, the, these are such <laughs> hackneyed thoughts. None of this is original to me. But I highly recommend that everyone read Jaron Lanier's book, 10 Reasons to Delete Your Social Media Accounts Right Now, because what he does and he's a great thinker on all this because he actually works in he, tech he is. and coined the phrase um, virtual reality many years ago. But what he explains so clearly is the nature of all those algorithms you were talking about, that the nature of the way that platforms make money is that they require engagement and anger is the quickest prompt to engagement. So the, mm-hmm. the forms of communication we are using online actually lead us toward conflict. It's as if having a telephone conversation meant that you would end up in an argument because of the nature of being Hmm. on the telephone. (laughs) It's not good. (laughs) No, that's really interesting. And it gets at our nature in some way and how it can be manipulated. But, okay, so I've had my boomer two minutes of whining and complaining, but here's the final thing. You mentioned earlier that we fiction writers sort of write to find out what we think. And what I learned from writing The Candy House is that I am a total optimist. Like, the book is full of humor. It's full of hope. Mm -hmm. And what I found myself discovering in the course of writing it is that I have an enormous amount of faith in human beings. We are, God knows we're fallible, you know, but we are so resourceful when we have to be. Sometimes it's late, and I'm very worried about that with regard to the climate, but I think that we surprise ourselves and each other with our selflessness, which does erupt mm-hmm. amidst all of this, the selfishness and the narcissism that also I think is, is, is true to us. And I feel a lot of optimism. That's what the candy has taught me. So listen, thank you so much. This was really, really pleasurable. And um, I'm just really glad you agreed to do it. Such a pleasure for me too. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks, Jenny. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. A good one, we hope. To catch all the latest from the Sun Valley Writers Conference, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to listen to this conversation in its entirety, or to any of our other talks, you can find them at svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Until next time. Until next time.